0: Hello there, welcome to Defiance, and today I'm talking to Brittany Kaiser, the former business development director of Cambridge Analytica, who turned whistleblower against Facebook and her former employer, and who also featured heavily in the Netflix documentary The Great Hack. But before we get into the interview, I need to welcome and thank my sponsor Kraken and their CEO Jesse Powell, who are helping make this happen. Kraken also sponsored What Bitcoin Did, my other show which is dedicated to Bitcoin, itself, an act of financial defiance. Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 by its pseudo-anonymous inventor, Satoshi Nakamoto, as a response to the 2008 financial crisis. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom, and Kraken is the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, kraken puts the power in your hands to buy sell and trade bitcoin you can find out more at kraken.com which is k-r-a-k-e-n.com
1: the reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it resilient resolute defiant in the face of impossible odds we are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money is money
0: Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of
2: defiance. Nice to see you. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No, not a problem. I'm very interested in the story. Firstly, where I was fully aware of the story, but not yourself until Mm -hmm. probably a few months ago. When was (laughs) it? it? Was When Caitlin emailed me, she said... If you're coming to Wyoming, you've got to meet Brittany. Wonderful. And, and so then I went back I'm and looked. At the, well, then I went back and looked at the story, and then the film was coming out. But I wasn't aware of any of the players at the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm really interested in knowing both sides of this story. When I say both sides, this appears to be your life appears to be in two acts at the moment. The, up until Christopher Wiley mentioned your name in in, you, parliament. in parliament. Well, I think it was, it was more of a hearing, wasn't it? And then mm-hmm. everything since. Mm-hmm. So. I'm really interested in both sides. So what I want to do is I want to go through the background, talk about what happened, and then talk about what, what you're doing now. Of course. Cool. So I'm most interested in when you had gone for the Obama campaign. So can you talk to me about what happened? And Because that sounds like obviously a very exciting thing to be involved, and mm-hmm. in you worked on the social campaign. So, Can you talk to me about kind of your schooling and what led to that?
2: Yeah, of course. So I had first actually met Barack Obama in 2004. It was Just the, like that. It was the Democratic National Convention in Boston and I was going to boarding school at the time outside of Boston and I had been invited to participate in a youth leadership summit that actually taught you how to run political campaigns. So they took a bunch of young students and we ran a mock political campaign during the Democratic National Convention. And then they would take us to the different caucuses and as many of the speeches as possible and get us involved in all of the issues, advocacy, and events for us to fully understand the process. And I went to a small environmental rally where then State Senator Barack Obama was speaking about how him and Senator Dick Durbin were doing work in the state of Illinois to stop British petroleum from dumping into the streams and waterways that feed into Lake Michigan. It was actually a loophole that George Bush had created. You used to not be able to dump into any of the waterways in America. And then instead, all of a sudden, there's this loophole where you can't dump directly into the Great Lakes, but you can dump into the streams and waterways that feed into them. So (laughs) uh, I was absolutely floored by how eloquent he was, how brilliant he was. And there were only 30 people there about uh, to listen to him speak. So I stayed afterwards and asked him what I could do to help. I mean, I was totally in awe of him. How old were you? I was 15, 16, 15 years old, I think. And I... I was lucky that he had the time to speak to me and he said, you know what, I'm going to run for U.S. Senate. You should, you should volunteer for my campaign. And he even invited me to breakfast the next morning. I had breakfast with him and he gave me a ticket to see his famous speech that he made about how there, there's not the red states and blue states or the United States or the whole world fell in love with him and decided yep. he would one day become president. I agreed and I quit. Edinburgh University, briefly, in order to go work on his campaign in 2007. So I was a 19-year-old intern, unpaid, slaving away 24-7, sometimes sleeping in the office. They had blankets and pillows and... Is this in D.C.? This was in Chicago. In Chicago. So yeah, he's an Illinois senator, so usually wherever you're from ends up being where your headquarters is. Okay, that's
0: where your base is. Mm -hmm. Okay.
2: And so I had in high school started doing digital design in order to run part of the school newspaper. I was head of photography, so I had learned a lot about digital editing and a lot about content creation. And so I got a place on the new media team at the time. Uh New media meant data and digital design and creative and like kind of everything put together and social media because it was so new. So the new media team, my first assignment was to create Barack Obama's Facebook page. And I was sat right next to Chris Hughes, the Facebook co-founder who I had actually gone to high school with. And on a day-to-day basis, we were creating the first ever social media communications campaigns. No one had ever used social media for any reason besides to talk to their friends or to find a new girlfriend or boyfriend or date or what have you. So we, every day, were trying new things. We started to rudimentarily collect data in the most basic ways. We were looking on Facebook at what people cared about and what people were commenting on, and then we would start to categorize them, okay, this person cares about the environment, this person cares about healthcare, and that data would end up feeding into all the emails that we sent them, the text campaigns that they would get, the ways that we would respond to them, which at the time was one-to-one. I would literally be writing Emails or messages to these people and say, you know, thank you for contacting Barack. He's on the campaign trail, so my name is Brittany, and you know, we're really excited that you support us. And here's everything else you should know about healthcare because you care about healthcare policy. And so that was the beginning of what you could call micro-targeting, which Mm -hmm. was manual.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, so i worked in the industry before this. I did 20 years in advertising, and Mm -hmm. we were a digital agency. So email campaigns, social media campaigns. So like, I'm fully aware of it. And one of the reasons I want to go through the backstories, I kind of want to piece together the series of events that Mm -hmm. led to you working for Cambridge Analytica and also trying to identify where something goes from being the use of technology in an appropriate way to something a little bit more sinister. Mm -hmm. Because... I think it's very easy to just come and go, right, I'm going to have a go at Brittany. I'm going I'm to really tear it down for what happens at Cambridge Analytica. But I, what I believe is there's just a series of events that takes you on a journey. Mm-hmm. and that, So that's what I'm trying to uh, learn. Thank so, you. So that stuff with the Barrack campaign, mm-hmm. how much of that was almost the kind of building blocks of the work that became Cambridge Analytica?
2: It was the very beginning of data collection on social media and using people's data in order to target them with political messaging meant specifically for them. So everything that started to come out of that was advanced data analytics and more sophisticated ways of collecting more data about citizens. So obviously, the more you know about someone, the easier it is to engage them and to get them interested in what you had to say. So at the time, everything seemed completely above board to me. I was getting people to register to vote that had never voted before. I was getting people to care about voting again that hadn't voted in 20 years. I was inspiring people to care about issues that were really important to me as well. And I saw that as a wonderful thing. And throughout the many years after that, I worked for charities, nonprofits, and United Nations agencies doing fundraising and marketing and you know, data-driven communications. And so my entire experience of data was that it's only used for good. The more data that we have on people, the better we can actually be at achieving important goals, right? And so I never really saw the dark side of it i never thought you know how can this be abused it, it took me a really long time to get there so how do you
0: even identify what is appropriate use and what is abuse uh, the only thing from my side is that i like positive messages positive campaigns so if you mm-hmm. find out somebody's on facebook you find they're interested in the, the environment then you can push obama's environmental message to them. Mm -hmm. The stuff I don't like is that perhaps they potentially want to vote for Hillary. We're going to push negative imagery of Hillary and paint a picture of her as a crooked person. Almost like the defensive kind of Mm -hmm. use. That's the stuff I don't like. I'm with you, 100%. But but the problem, Brittany, is like I saw a bunch of things that Cambridge Analytica did that I saw were wrong. Mm -hmm. But with this whole research, because we've been talking for a couple of months now, I've never been able to draw the line and say, there's the problem. Mm -hmm. Have you...
2: So it took me a really long time to fully grasp what was going on and what what negative use cases of data fully looked like and what their impacts were. So I suppose in order to... I'll, I'll answer the question, but there's more of a, a backstory to that. Okay. But, I mean, today I would say there's a number of ways of kind of measuring what is positive and negative use. One is if you are using data to commit crimes. There are very specific things that data has been used for in elections all over the world, that is not legal, like voter suppression. or And some negative campaigning can be considered that.
0: Trinidad, was that voter suppression? Yes. So, interestingly, I wrote down here, that was the most concerning part of the whole documentary for me. Whilst yes. I live in Britain and you know, Brexit was a big issue and obviously what happened with Trump's a big issue, they're both campaigns, I actually, that was the most concerning part of the whole, whole film for me in that a bunch of voters were convinced not to vote to swing in an election. Mm-hmm. And that for me went to, that wasn't, people would be manipulated to drive an election to a specific result without even realizing. Mm-hmm. I, I found that was very different from propaganda of sending messages about why you should vote for this person versus that person. Exactly. This one, the you had to stop them voting. Mm-hmm.
2: So what was really interesting, when I was on the Obama campaign, they decided to make a massive statement by only doing positive campaigning. So negative campaigning was completely ruled out. And any negative commentary about Democrats or Republicans even was to be deleted.
1: So if
2: people would write on Barack Obama's Facebook wall, for instance, something negative about John McCain or something negative about Hillary, we deleted it. And we didn't consider it censorship. We just had a rule. We're only doing positive messaging and a response to someone criticizing Obama would also be positive and highlight what his policies were that were actually going to solve whatever problem that he was being, you know, questioned about. So that was completely amazing. That was my first experience with political campaigning was something that was only positive.
0: But even in that, you've got the challenge of what is a negative message that you want to delete and what is fine because you know, Hillary Clinton is crooked is a, you know, that's a negative message. You could probably find some gray areas where it's maybe a criticism of her policy, but maybe comes across as aggressive. Mm -hmm. Did you have those challenges?
2: Yeah, it, it was one of the hardest conversations we ever had inside Obama HQ, which was, okay, we're using social media for the first time to reach out to people politically, and some people are writing back some very nasty things. Some of them are lighter, and then some of them are really, incitement of racial hatred. Right. And where are we going to draw the line, number one, and are we going to either support all free speech and say everybody can say whatever they want and we're going to let that happen, or are we going to censor things that we think are so negative that it's bad for it to be on our wall? We refuse to host that content. Okay. Right. And so we ended up having an army of hundreds of volunteers that were kind of vetting these things. And so sometimes that would get asked to a supervisor, but sometimes, you know, these are positive, excited teenagers um, that are making a decision about what is something that is too negative to be hosted on Barack's page. And obviously, as you could imagine, a minority running for the presidential seat, there, people had a lot of really terrible things to say that I... That... <laughs> We actually had an entire list of people that we would report to the FBI on a daily basis.
0: Wow. So that okay. was part
2: of my job. <laughs> okay. it's got that negative. So that was where I saw the problems of social media in the beginning, that people can hide behind a digital mask, and therefore it makes people more aggressive And it, and it really brings out the worst in some people unfortunately
0: well i've lived that doing this podcast i've had numerous r- arguments and offensive comments online and then i meet the people in person and get on great i just <laughs> did an interview with this guy ragnar who we've clashed we've even blocked each other a couple of times but <laughs> we met up we talked through it and we recorded one of my my best interviews okay so moving forward anyway so you win the election Obama wins the election. Yeah. Everyone's happy. Everyone's happy. You must be feeling like, this is great. What a career I've got here ahead of me. You've worked on a really positive campaign. Look, Mm -hmm. everyone loved Obama. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know he has had his critics since. I really like the guy. Mm -hmm. I could have voted for him, right? Yeah. Okay. So, But after that, you went and worked in human rights. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I actually uh, left the Obama campaign to move to Hong Kong, where uh, this is very topical these days, but I moved to Hong Kong and I very quickly made friends with a lot of human rights activists there. And I was very inspired by the work that they were doing. There there were a few different things that they were working on. One was helping North Korean refugees uh, get somewhere where they could seek asylum and not Uh not be sent back. The second was opposing something called Article 8, which the Chinese Communist Party was trying to put through in the Hong Kong parliament, which would mean that they would have a final veto over anything that happened. Right. So, you know, similar to what's recently been going on in Hong Kong, uh, the Chinese Communist Party was trying their best to get Article 8 passed and I got involved in all of these massive protests in Hong Kong where hundreds of thousands of people would flock out into the streets and the Hong Kong parliament would end up uh, either rejecting or dropping the bill or what have you. So. I got very into that, and I realized you know political campaigning is great, but human rights activism is, is where I see my future, and that's what I ended up doing for so many years. I ended up doing four law degrees in human rights law and international relations and diplomacy in order to learn how to be the most effective human rights campaigner that I could. And that's how, strangely, I ended up at Cambridge Analytica. But didn't
0: you, just before that, didn't you find frustrations in working in human rights and actually seeing the impact of the work.
2: Yes, Uh, so I found that when I was doing high level lobbying at the United Nations, at the European Parliament, you would see sometimes politicians taking up your cause, maybe deciding to pass a new law or bring about a national initiative in their country. And that's great, but a lot of times you can't see once a law has been passed, how quickly it's ratified and how quickly that actually turns into positive action. And then I did a lot of on the ground work. So, you know, working on sustainable development programs where I'm working in a rural village doing something like, you know, helping NGOs be more effective in areas where they don't have that much knowledge or they're new. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could see on a day to day basis all of the amazing work that you're doing, but you know that you're affecting a very small group of people. And if you could get these programs, throughout an entire country or a whole region that you would have a much bigger effect. But once you start doing things at that level, it's very hard to measure if those people on the ground are actually seeing the benefit of your day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. So that is how I wanted. I got to a place where I really wanted to learn about data analytics. Okay. So I was writing my PhD in genocide prevention. So uh, I'm an expert in crimes against humanity. And I got to this third chapter where I was writing all about big data and how if you could figure out how to harness big data and model it properly, that you could build early warning systems and stop wars before they start, as opposed to spending six years at the International Criminal Court yeah. in The Hague and the war criminal dies before you even get to prosecute him. <laughs> so of yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of examples of that. Yeah. And I thought I would work in international criminal justice. And when I saw how ineffective some of that work actually is, I thought preventive diplomacy is much better. And so I'm trying to write my third chapter about predictive analytics and early warning systems. No one at my law school could help me with that. So I got introduced through a friend to the CEO of Cambridge Analytica, Alexander Nix. But that's that's a hell of an intro.
0: It's not like an intro to a data scientist in a company can help you. It's an intro to the CEO. So Mm -hmm. I'm guessing there was more to it than just, hey, can you help me out with this data I want to produce for my work in human rights?
2: Yeah. I mean, you can read all about that first meeting in my book, Targeted. It's where the book opens, actually, when I first meet Alexander Nix. Was that in London? It was in London. It was in Mayfair at a sushi restaurant.
0: Best city in the world.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And... It was funny, I wasn't actually invited to the lunch to meet him at first. Okay. I was invited to the lunch to meet some other gentlemen that were there that had an election going on in their country. And my friend knew that I had done work for the Democrats for a decade mm-hmm. and that maybe I could help them out with their social media strategy. So I showed up, and Alexander was also invited to the lunch to pitch as well. Okay. (laughs) So we were actually pitching against each other (laughs) in our first meeting, (laughs) which was kind of hilarious. He obviously was much more experienced than me, and I found that out very quickly. And the friend that had invited us both thought it would be hilarious that his Republican and Democrat consultant friends would actually meet and perhaps spend time together in the future. And I learned a lot about what he did at that lunch. And I thought, hey, here's a guy that maybe in the US he's consulting to Republicans, but in the rest of the world, he is running defense contracts for NATO, helping young people not get recruited into ISIS online, and teaching all allied militaries how to keep kids at home with their families and not sneaking themselves into Syria.
0: Great. So this is why Brittany didn't just jump from being a popular, supporter of the Obama campaign, a Democrat, pushing positive, jumping straight into negative Trump campaigns. Mm -hmm. You identified the work they were doing, and there was an alignment between your
2: interests at that Mm -hmm. time. Okay,
0: so that makes sense. Yeah. So?
2: So, I ended up eventually becoming a consultant to the company, specifically originally on social programs. So, they had done a lot of work for UNESCO and UNDP and a lot of ministries of health around the world. And I was trying to win them contracts in the social sphere and also in international elections. So I was pitching green parties and liberal parties, okay. et cetera, and so forth in different places. Eventually, I ended up in the United States, mostly actually working on commercial applications. So I would have been doing the same thing you did when you were in advertising, yep. going and meeting with you know the Unilevers and the Coca-Colas of the world to explain to them how to use data better. Yep. And... That was when I started to really learn the extent of the lack of data protection in the United States. I had no idea that you could actually collect that much data as a commercial company, that you could just purchase and license the amount of data that the NSA holds, right? I I, I didn't think that was possible. I obviously was a very avid follower of Snowden's revelations when Edward first came out, Mm -hmm. and you know, I... I didn't wasn't totally surprised that the government's collecting all this data, but I was surprised when I learned how much data Cambridge Analytica was able to buy and hold about Americans without even being an American company. Okay. Originally, right? Yep. <laughs> so foreign yep. actors can just purchase and license insane amounts of data about American citizens. And that was kind of surprising, but at first I thought, okay, this is cool. I want to learn how to use these tools yep. because Everything that was done at Cambridge Analytica came with something called measurements of effectiveness, MOE. It's usually used by the United Nations and NGOs to describe projects, but a lot of times the impact of those projects is very hard to measure. So I thought, okay, hey, I'm going to learn how to measure the effectiveness of everything that I do. So I know if I'm campaigning and I'm putting my blood, sweat, and tears into something that it's actually working. And this is cool, and I'm going to stay here until I really learn how to do this. Okay. Yeah. Then? (laughs) So some of my... You're obviously
0: impressing them at this point. They're obviously taking note of your work.
2: Yeah. We were getting along very well. I developed a very close like, personal friendship, I thought, at the time with Alexander. And he took me under his wing as his protege, so to say, and I traveled with him around the world, watched him pitch, learned all of the different ways the data could be used in different countries.
0: Living a good life alongside it, though. Yeah, I mean,
2: Cambridge Analytica at the time was, you you wouldn't imagine, but we actually, like, scrimped on the budget. So, obviously, Alexander is wealthy himself, so he would treat me to nice meals and, you know, we would go out and have fun. But, you know, we were staying at budget hotels. We flew Economy, even... All the way across the world. The only reason, even he flew economy, and would stay at you know, a Holiday Inn. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, he was using Rebecca Mercer's money, so he had to be accountable. Okay. 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 <laughs> when he was using his own, he would treat me, which okay. was really lovely. But.
0: How old were you at this time?
2: Um, I was twenty-six. So it's pretty
0: cool at twenty-six to be doing all this, right? Yeah, yeah. I thought so. Yeah.
2: So I wanted to learn as much as I could learn from him. And for the first year I was at the company, I was still writing my PhD. So Uh all of a sudden, instead of one chapter on data, I am spending every single day learning an entire doctoral thesis worth of information about how data can be used and can be effective. right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't really until I saw some of the results of the Brexit campaign. And how data was used there. Yes. Um, and when I was first presented the results of the Trump campaign, those were two totally different situations where Cambridge actually was involved in the Brexit campaign, but didn't run it. So yeah. Cambridge didn't put together the messaging.
0: Why did they, was there so much denial about being involved?
2: Well, I think one of the biggest problems was that it, it's more... I don't know what the saying is, but people say, you know, it's it, it's the cover-up, not the crime, that ends up being worse. Yeah. So there was a bit of work that was done for the Leave EU campaign. I I was one of the people doing that work. And that work was never paid for by those Brexiteers, which is why Cambridge didn't end up actually running the full campaign. We did the first phase of work, and they didn't pay us, so we didn't end up actually coming on to run the whole campaign. Why did they not pay you? (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) I mean... Ask Aaron Banks. He, he, not that he tells okay. the truth, but okay. <laughs> um, he ended up never paying our invoice. And I think it's possibly related to the fact that they never received the designation. Vote Leave became the official campaign okay. for Brexit. And what that means is the designated campaign gets uh, 7 million pounds from the government. Yeah. And then the other campaign, they don't get any TV slots. They don't get any funding. And you can continue or not to actually run your campaign, but you don't have any official support. So it would have been out of the pockets of yeah, the okay. people from the campaign, not from donors or the government. So that's possibly one of the reasons, but I'm not going to make excuses for people that seem to but is that the, not tell the truth. Is that
0: the depth <laughs> of what, how much you've been involved in Brexit, or was there more?
2: Well, there's a lot more that I'm learning every few weeks okay. about how... Some of the data that Cambridge Analytica came to possess from the UK Independence Party and from Leave VU may have actually been used more than we thought. So you'll find out yeah, okay, <laughs> more. I'll... Yep.
0: Okay, okay. Very
2: soon. Um, but I think one of the interesting things is that Cambridge's partner company, mm-hmm. which at the time was running all digital campaigns with Cambridge Analytica, called AIQ, where Christopher Wiley was actually working. They ran the the vote leave campaign. So the official designated campaign and Damien Collins published some of the the plans and what they did. It was a Cambridge Analytica campaign. I mean, it was really data was proposed to be used in the exact same way okay. that Cambridge proposes it. So Christopher had worked at Cambridge Analytica before, yeah, and then he switched over to AIQ, which was a Cambridge partner company. We actually called it SCL Canada. <laughs> um, SCL Group owned yeah, Cambridge yeah. Analytica, yeah. and they ran the Vote Leave campaign. He's an unusual
0: character, Christopher Wiley.
2: I've never met him in person, so we don't actually know each other.
0: Right, so the read I got from him was that he was almost just competitive.
2: Well, he did set up a competing company to Cambridge Analytica called Unoya Technologies with apparently a larger Facebook data set than Cambridge had and pitched the Brexit campaign and pitched the Trump campaign. Yeah, Lost the Trump pitch to Cambridge. Yeah, And he was actually in active litigation with Alexander for a long time and he had to shut down his company because of those lawsuits for breaking all of his contractual obligations. So we can take a lot from that.
0: Okay, so... Britain votes for exit.
2: (laughs) Britain votes to leave, and you start to see all of the accountability only come out afterwards. Okay, here's all the claims that these campaigns were made off of, and here's the messages that people were targeted with. And some of this is blatant lies and misinformation, not just miscalculation of numbers. And a lot of it was fear-mongering. Some of it was incitement of racial hatred. And you start to see that data was used to target people in order to manipulate them and not using truthful information and not using data for good. It wasn't a campaign built on positivity, unfortunately.
0: Do you think the course of history was changed?
2: Yes. I mean, especially, I lived in the UK for almost 14 years. I'm a permanent resident. I consider Britain my home. At the time, I really thought. You know, I'm going to marry an Englishman, I'm going to live in the UK my whole life, and I'm going to have British children. So I want to see a great future for the UK. And for the past three years, all I've seen is turmoil. I've seen society be ripped apart in the United Kingdom and it breaks my heart.
0: Yeah, It 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 isn't great. It's very interesting to see how it's going to play out, actually. I was very anti a second vote. I was like, we had a vote. Yeah, I actually voted to remain and mm-hmm. always said, oh, I voted again, I'd vote leave. Mm-hmm. I feel there's enough in this to be deserving of a second vote.
2: Yeah, I agree with you, actually.
0: Because I feel like... This is the
2: first time I've said that out loud, but wow, yes. Wow, okay,
0: yeah. No, I do, because I feel like we don't really know... We don't know if democracy was, was skewed here. Yeah. We can't tell. And actually, there was something Christopher Wiley said in the film where he talked about if you take drugs and you cheat in the Olympics, mm-hmm. we don't look at how much you measure, you cheat yeah, and you're out. I know. And I thought that was a really well put point.
2: I love that quote. I think it's so, it really illustrates to people what this means because what I see when I look at what's happened in the repercussions of Brexit, I see that I was able to give evidence that gave the biggest ever fine to a private company for data abuse. That was unfortunately only 500,000 pounds to Facebook, which they make apparently every seven seconds or something like that. But still, it was a fine. And then there were multiple fines given to the Levy U campaign and Eldon Insurance for data abuse as well. And there were also violations on um, campaign finance and reporting. Right. So if you tally up all of the fines that were given, it was £500,000 to Facebook and £135,000 for Aaron Banks' two entities. So I really think that British democracy and the integrity of the European Union was sold for £635,000. So much. No,
0: it isn't. Jeez. Okay, okay, well, that's something I'm probably going to look into again in the future. Mm-hmm. I do want to now... Focus on the bridge into the Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when did that become something where you had to make a decision to work on
2: it? Um, so I never worked on it. Okay. Um, I was actually brought to New York to do the first pitch. So I did the first pitch to Corey Lewandowski in Trump Tower, mm-hmm. which was in the room. In in insane experience, coming into Trump Tower and being told by Corey that I was on the set of The Apprentice. Yeah. So I'm on a reality TV set pitching a campaign that I was told was not going to likely be a presidential campaign but probably more a commercial marketing exercise. Okay. And that was kind of mind-blowing, but it also kind of reassured me that this man's never going to be president, so this isn't a big deal. I'm just in here. Nobody thought he would. I'm in here pitching a contract for Trump Corporation. Like, okay, just like any other company in New York that does business, like, fine, sure. And many months later, when Cambridge actually started working on the campaign, I wasn't really like everybody in the company started working on it. At the time, the company had grown really large. We were about Mm -hmm. 120 people and there was at least a seven person team that started on the Trump campaign and i was not one of those people i'm not a i'm not an ad tech specialist or a data scientist so that that was really the people that were sent to san antonio and worked in trump tower if you were research data science or digital strategy like that's that's what you did. I was business development. So I kept on going out and pitching new contracts around the world while my colleagues were working on the Trump campaign.
0: So you only ever pitched? You never did any work supporting any? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. That's not explained in the film.
2: No, (laughs) it's not. But you only have under two hours to explain a very complex topic. So can't go into all of it. But as my colleagues were working on the Trump campaign, there's a rule by the Federal Election Commission that if you are working on a campaign, you have to do a training and sign a lot of paperwork to enter into what they call a firewall. So it means nobody outside of the firewall is allowed to know what you're doing, especially me where I was communicating with high-level people from super PACs and other presidential campaigns. I wasn't to know what they were doing on a day-to-day basis Okay. at all. I couldn't be copied into emails. I couldn't be a part of meetings. I wasn't supposed to see any content, nothing. So most of what was going on in the Trump campaign, unless I saw something sitting on a colleague's desk or happened to walk by one of the creative's computers as they were designing an ad, I didn't know what they were doing.
0: When were you first aware that they were manipulating people, misusing data?
2: When they gave what they called the Trump campaign debriefing. We had two days, two days in December, a month after election day, uh-huh. where we were given eight hours each day a presentation of what was done in both the Trump campaign and for the Trump super PAC, which was called Make America Number 1. It was the Defeat Crooked Hillary campaign, yep. if you recall that. I remember that. Yeah. So it's December 20th. The 20- mm-hmm.
0: in the cro- Crooked, yeah.
2: Yeah, yep. designed by Cambridge Creative. Yep. And we had... Sixteen hours of being shown every single thing that was done in the campaign.
0: Uh, okay, so that was a revelation. Yeah. Who's who's in the room? Is that is Alexander in there?
2: So we had every Cambridge office around the world dialed into a webcast. Wow. So at the time we were in, we had an office in New York, in D.C., Mexico City, London, the Balkans, Hong Kong. It, it was really starting to proliferate <laughs> what, but
0: what was the what was the kind of atmosphere on that call was it people could what the fuck is going on here or was everyone just enamored with it what i mean i'm trying to imagine
2: so it, it was it was a really awkward time for me and the other people that were in new york headquarters so new york was mostly people who were just working on commercial advertising campaigns they were selling cars and toothpaste <laughs> and this is the first time that we're receiving information about what exactly was done for the Trump campaign and the super PAC, what the creative pieces looked like, what, what were the advertising, what was the strategy. And what we were hoping to take away from this is, okay, here are all of the numbers and how impactful all of your strategies were so that we can convert that to pitches for commercial companies, right? So all of us are in New York like, waiting to just see like exciting numbers like, hey, we 20% increase in voter registration, 35% increase in intent to vote for Donald Trump, whatever it is. And instead of getting all of these really useful numbers, we are shown some of the most disturbing pieces of advertising you've ever seen in your life. Propaganda? (laughs) Definitely. Okay. (laughs) 100%. And things that were put together in such a way as specifically to incite fear, and to weaponize racism and sexism and so many different divides in American society. Yeah, let that, me ask you something.
0: Yeah, the Trump campaign will have a team outside of your team, of, mm-hmm. the Cambridge Analytica team, yes. right? How much of this kind of this kind of negative propaganda will have come from? the Cambridge Analytica team? And how much would have just been part of the Trump team also having that kind of strategy?
2: Well, the scary thing is, is that it wasn't really a Cambridge Analytica Trump campaign decision. It's decisions that come out of the data. Okay. So if you see that there's a large group of people that are not really likely to vote and they are neurotic, introverted and they care about national security, you would end up seeing an entire messaging campaign inciting fear to people that are easily scared and that make their decisions based on fear. Okay. And, you know, talking about how terrorists are going to come through our porous border, and if you vote for Hillary, like, you know, we're, we're all of a sudden going to be living under Sharia law. And you see these things, which is complete, Fearmongering and misinformation. And it's the data that's telling them to make these decisions because here are people that are easily scared. Here are people that think that national security is our biggest issue and they can easily be persuaded either not to vote or to definitely vote for Trump instead of Hillary if they're shown this type of, as you said, propaganda. I, I would definitely call it that, yes.
0: So the Cambridge Analytica data was essentially the bedrock of the whole campaign. That so, would have driven everything. But I was publicly aware of very negative Trump campaigning. I mean, mm-hmm. it was out there. It was obvious to see. I, I could see mm-hmm. the stuff they were saying about Hillary. Uh, had How had you not connected that to the Cambridge Analytica work?
2: Well, I mean, again, Trump isn't controlled by anybody. He yeah, makes his
0: own decisions. No, about, I mean the campaign.
2: Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah,
0: like like for me, I just see very negative campaigning. At mm-hmm. no part, had you thought... I wonder if this negative campaigning is the result of our work.
2: I mean, definitely at the time I wasn't very excited about this person running around talking about building a wall. I was actually building an office in Mexico City, and I had moved to Mexico, and a lot of my best friends were Mexican. And I was actually horrified when I would hear Donald Trump speak on television. But I thought, hey... this guy's going to lose and he's going to be discredited and this is just going to be an embarrassment for him for the rest of his life and it's going to motivate people to squash out this type of rhetoric in politics. I really thought that it was a total joke that he was running.
0: And after the meeting where you're all showing the work, are you doing soul searching at this point? What's going on then?
2: So it was a really interesting time in my life where... I didn't have any money in savings. My father had just had brain surgery, and we had learned that he would never work again. And my grandfather was about to pass away.
0: Okay.
2: And it was a time where I thought, hey, this would be a great time to leave this company, but I don't know where another paycheck like this is going to come from. Okay. I had actually spent... Most of my life working for free, doing pro bono work or earning next to nothing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even fundraising through family, friends to cover costs of me going and doing a voluntary project somewhere. So being on the salary from a for-profit company, this is the first time I had ever had that. This was my first permanent job ever. (laughs) So I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is get on the right side of the conceptual wall and move to Mexico and have nothing to do with what's going on in America anymore.
0: Right, okay. But Christopher Wiley calls you out. (laughs) So was that the trigger to have to leave that moment?
2: So what had been happening in my life for a while was that I had started to become really grossed out by the data industry and really shocked at how easy it was to abuse data and how easy it was to acquire massive amounts of data on people without their consent. And I had known about blockchain technology for a long time. I had my first Bitcoins in 2011. And I had been following the development in the industry and started to get very involved. And I was spending all of my personal time learning more about blockchain technology. And I thought, hey, okay, well, there might be a way to solve all of these problems and actually turn the power of Cambridge Analytica into something that can be used for good. And from Mexico, I was working with Cambridge Analytica to build a blockchain-based system where users would control their own data Okay. and they would decide what they wanted to share or not and they could hygiene their own data and share it or not. But if they shared it, they would be rewarded in tokens for that. And still, all the blockchain companies I advise right now are doing exactly that. And so I was really excited that the most famous data Science company in the world could possibly start to build a data ownership solution. And I built within Cambridge Analytica a blockchain kind of advertising business. So we had a handful of blockchain companies that we were helping to promote them. I mean, at the time it was promoting ICOs mostly, but that's what it was like in 2017. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's more what it was like. But yeah. also for some companies, it was ecosystem development, okay. so finding users for their apps. And I started to get really excited about that. I'm just like, well, you know, it would be silly to leave now when my boss tells me every other day that this is going to be a billion dollar company. And yep. I have the opportunity to be a part of building a massive blockchain ecosystem that'll totally change the data industry. And we can also promote blockchain companies and make them into real popular companies with mass adoption because of how powerful our ecosystem is. So I was pretty excited about that opportunity, and I had no idea that my company had Facebook data they weren't supposed to have. Okay. So when Chris came out with that, I thought, huh, what else was going on that I either didn't know about or I hadn't thought twice about, that if I were to reflect and start to look at all of my past communications and documents that I had, might actually be a lot worse than what I thought it was when I was, you know, Uh looking around at all the shiny objects and not really thinking really hard about what the company was possibly doing in places around the world. Okay. So I was in Puerto Rico at Restart Week, speaking about data ownership and speaking about the new laws that had been passed in Wyoming, because I had already... I basically quit Cambridge Analytica to come support Caitlin here in Wyoming. Uh (laughs) That was one of the reasons why Alexander and I could not see eye to eye near the end that I said, I'm going to go to Wyoming for a week or two, and I'm not going to be doing any work for you. And you're just going to have to live with that. You know, like fire me if you want. And I go to restart week. I'm speaking about the new Wyoming laws. I'm speaking about data ownership. And the news drops. Yep about the Facebook data set. Yeah. So (laughs) I thought, hey, either I'm going to just continue on with my blockchain work and solve these problems quietly, or I'm going to be a lot louder about what just happened than even Chris is because I was there for everything. But if you're there and you're going to be loud about it, it feels like
0: you were aware of things that probably were wrong, and perhaps the situation, you know, the life, the job, the money, allowed you to turn a blind eye to things? Is that fair?
2: In a way, yeah. And that's the difficulty with being a whistleblower, because when you're a whistleblower, it means that you were involved in things that eventually you decide are unsavory. But you were involved, and you were there.
0: Yeah. See, I... One of the interesting things is when I first watched the documentary Mm -hmm. and I was aware of Brittany Kaiser the whistleblower, I watched it and I didn't think of you as a whistleblower afterwards.
2: Mm -hmm. Some people feel that way.
0: Yeah, I felt more like... I kind of tend to feel like whistleblowers perhaps are the first to jump ship when they realize there's a problem and they are compelled by their own moral conscience at the time that this needs exposing. I felt like potentially that you had two choices. One, you are wrapped up in this and you are potentially part of the negative side of the story or you speak up and you control your narrative a bit better. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you came out of it perfect and clean, but I think... Of course not. But you look at how Alex answer has come out of it and it's very different.
2: Oh, I'm the only person from Cambridge Analytica to actually come out and speak and expose everything. I'm the only person that gave my entire work computer hard drive to the government. Yeah. I'm the only person that has gone around and done testimonies all around the world to help governments. Yeah.
0: And I follow you, and I think that's brilliant, but I'm, what, what right. I'm trying to get at, and trying to be as fair as I can is of that, course. and we will never know, but would you have done this if the news hadn't broken? And it sounds to me like you probably wouldn't have.
2: Well, I didn't know that as many things were going wrong as actually were going wrong. That's the thing. I was never an executive. I wasn't in management meetings.
0: But you knew enough to be a whistleblower. Do you see what I mean? It's either you either knew enough or you didn't it didn't happen until the news broke. So I didn't see you as a whistleblower, but I, I don't hold that against you. Mm-hmm. I saw you were in a tough choice and I've, you know, in prep to the interview, I've talked to people about have you been conflicted at times in life mm-hmm. and career? And I think we are. Of course. I've, I have. You know, I've, you know, all parts of my life. When I worked in advertising, so I, in fairness to you, I wrote, um, I should share it with you sometime, when mm-hmm. I quit the industry, I wrote something called online advertising does not work. <laughs> and what happened was, we got to a point where I realized we were essentially reporting stats to clients, whichever the best were, to mm-hmm. justify our retainers. Because if we didn't have our retainers, we'd lose our clients. And really, mm-hmm. What we were doing was wrong, and I had to mm-hmm. quit the industry because I knew we were lying, I knew we were getting paid for work that didn't work. Right. I was conflicted. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? So I, totally. I empathize with your situation, but I never saw it as a whistleblower.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, technically a whistleblower is anyone that gives know, yeah. original information to either press or authorities. And I've given over 100,000 documents and been a pro bono expert witness for a year and a half, like unable mm-hmm. to actually work. So it was a decision where I could have either stayed under the radar and just tried to make a living in the blockchain industry, which Uh is what I was trying to do at the time, or I could decide to put myself in a lot of danger, having no idea what was going to happen. Yes, in order to control the narrative, but because when I saw Chris Wiley's story come out, I saw that a lot of the stuff that was in those articles was second and third hand information. It wasn't information that he had experienced himself. So I thought if this is going to be one of the biggest topics in the world, the conversation needs to be added to by people that actually were there and can answer everybody's questions and can provide as much helpful information as possible at a time where everyone's grasping for answers uh-huh. and trying to figure out what the hell happened, right?
0: Okay, and when you make the decision to become a whistleblower, to to expose this... What are the steps you go through? So I'm imagining you had to consider your family. Mm-hmm. You had to consider your personal safety. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to be? And who is going to help you? Did you contact Paul or did he contact Paul you? Paul
2: contacted me.
0: So he contacted you. Was he the trigger? Yes. I like that guy.
2: Yeah, he's a wonderful person. Yeah. He is a very professional political activist and human rights activist and social activist. You know, he's helped found things like Change.org and Avaz and 38 Degrees and Crowd Pack. I mean, he really, really knows what he's doing.
0: He felt more than just a journalist following the story, though. I think he felt like he was helping you through a very tough time.
2: Oh, he was, yeah. So we had actually connected about a year before that. Uh, he wrote to me on LinkedIn, actually. Okay. And I looked at his LinkedIn profile and I thought, hey, someone that works for, has, You know, played a big role in all of these amazing organizations that I really respect, wants to have a phone call with me. Wow. I, I thought I was persona non grata working at Cambridge Analytica right now to liberal people. So great. Like, this is the type of person that I'm normally working with and friends with. So I'll get on the phone with him. And we ended up striking up a bit of a friendship, started hanging out in London, and he kept on kind of like, picking my brain for what was going on at the company, he was explaining to me all of the exciting things he was involved with. And whenever I was ready to quit Cambridge Analytica, that there were a lot of progressive causes waiting for my help. Okay, And that was very interesting for a while. Yep. But when the first whistleblowing story came out in the news, Mm -hmm. he called me and asked me if I was going to be okay with how this narrative was going to roll out, not written by people that were actually at Cambridge Analytica when all of yep. this happened. And I said, no, I'm not going to be okay with a story that is so intimately linked with me and my life being told by people that don't know what they're talking about. Okay. So I said, what, what do I need to do? Uh-huh. And he sent me a few links from Paul Lewis, the Guardian bureau chief in San Francisco at the time and I read it and he really understood what he was talking about Paul wrote about how you know companies like Cambridge Analytica were kind of scapegoats and Facebook was the problem and then Mm -hmm. he talked about the lack of data legislation and what that meant and I really really believed in a lot of the work that he had done so well
0: because one of the interesting things that I've also wrestled with is We've always been lied to in political campaigns. We've always mm-hmm. had propaganda put at us. When politicians debate on TV, they're more often than not lying or manipulating <laughs> things. Yeah, you know, one of the things I try to be fair with and try and think, give you know Cambridge Analytica the benefit of the doubt was was everyone's probably doing this. A bit like um, I used to, th- I compared it to like Lance Armstrong.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Lance Armstrong. Part of me doesn't care that he took drugs because they were all taking drugs. Like, he always said if he didn't take drugs, he couldn't compete. And mm-hmm. it turns out he was a piece of shit in the end. But yes. but in the end, you know, I, th- I thought about that situation. I assumed all companies are using data. They're all manipulating us. They're all sending us messages. This was just a bit more sinister. Mm-hmm. I tried to wrestle with that.
2: Yeah. I mean, for me, what really bothered me about what was done is that it verges into areas that I worked the rest of my life to... Stamp out. So when you see messaging that verges on incitement of racial hatred and voter suppression and weaponizing sexism against women, these are all things that I used to fight against. Yeah. And then you see the tools that you help build and sell around the world being used to do exactly that.
0: Do you think Cambridge Analytica changed the course of history with the Trump campaign?
2: I think that Cambridge Analytica change the course of history by allowing a campaign to become so incredibly negative and so viral that, once again, people around the world are remembering that they can't ignore politics and they can't be complacent and that being an armchair activist doesn't mean anything. Right. And that if you actually want to see the world be a better place and a good place, you actually have to stand up and do something about it. Right. And that if you're complacent, like I was, sitting in that company being okay with what they were doing and not voting in the general election, then guess what happens?
0: And you didn't vote?
2: I didn't, no. So the ads didn't work on you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, I voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary. You weren't a persuadable. Well, I had somehow been persuaded to not fly back to Chicago and cast my vote for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. So I would say I was pretty persuaded in a way. I mean, I, I, I doubt I will ever vote for a Republican in my life because their ideals don't appeal to me. But, you know, I never could have been persuaded to vote for Donald Trump, but I was persuaded not to vote for Hillary, which I naturally would have done automatically without thinking about it.
0: It's funny. I couldn't... Well, I can't vote because I'm British, but I mean, (laughs) I couldn't vote in the election. But being up here in Wyoming, I kind of like the Republican ideals up here. Libertarian ideals. Well, so yeah, because t- t- <laughs> Tyler says he's a libertarian Republican, but right. he's still a rep- he's still a Republican. He still represents the Republican Party, mm-hmm. right? There's an overlap between libertarianism
2: and p- Republicans, and totally. I
0: kind of like some of it. I kind of yeah. like the lifestyle
2: up here. I-, I love the lifestyle up here. I've moved here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so there are certain, you know, there are certain ideals that appeal to me in terms of promoting entrepreneurship yep. and protecting people's freedoms and allowing people to be empowered but there's a lot of things on in progressive ideals that do the same thing in different ways yeah so it's kind of which way you look at it you know i have both sides of my family are republican i have no problem with the party or people that choose to vote conservative there are just some ideals that i will never be able to agree with and therefore uh-huh. I've tended for most of my life to vote blue up and down the ticket. Okay, It's okay. just how it is. But now that I'm in Wyoming and I love all of the Republicans that I work with here, yeah. and I did used to love a lot of the Republicans that I worked with at Cambridge too, people who were really fantastic, amazing thinkers that I would work with again. And if given the chance to vote for those people, I I guess I probably would. But I, I doubt I'll ever vote for a Republican president. That would that yeah. would be something interesting, if that ever happened. Tyler Lindholm has <laughs> blown my mind as a person. Oh, he's incredible. Like, <laughs> fucking incredible. I know. Like literally, he's brilliant.
0: He's brilliant, and he's he's so engaging. He's so charismatic. He's just great. Like every I've, I'm that's the kind of politician I can get behind. Yeah. Oh.
2: If Tyler wanted to run for a higher office, I would be behind him. Yeah. 100%. But he doesn't represent anything at all that I find offensive. You know, there are a lot of candidates that Cambridge Analytica worked with that I actually found offensive. Yeah. You know, like our current president. And I find him incredibly offensive nearly every day and every moment that I'm awake and when I'm sleeping.
0: But there's lots of people who don't. Lots of people are perfectly happy with him. I've heard a lot of defenses. And that's their right. Yeah, but I've had a lot of defenses of him. You know, maybe some of his policies. I'm like, okay, maybe his policies are okay. But I also find people seem to brush over some very clear, obvious personality flaws.
2: I mean, that, that's the thing. You know, you can have all the best policies in the world, but if you incite racial hatred, yes. and if you hate women, yes. then you know what? You do not belong in the highest seat of power in the nation, if not the world, at all
0: and he might get another four years. it would be interesting to see how the campaign plays out if they follow the same trajectory.
2: Well, I mean, what I am very afraid of is that, you know, it's very possible that the president has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. And if he does not win, then he might have a sealed indictment and go to jail. If you actually read the Mueller report or watched his congressional testimony. So if you've I mean, you've that you've done like human rights interviews yeah. around the world from, from individuals who have escaped nations of dictators mm-hmm. who will do anything to stay in power. Yes. Because they know if they're not in power that they might be imprisoned or worse. I would be really, really afraid of what's about to happen in the 2020 campaign because he knows he has to stay in the White House in order to perhaps remain a free man. Okay, so we've gone on a
0: tangent here, but I want to explore this. Okay, so... <laughs>
2: I followed some of the
0: Mueller stuff. Mm-hmm. I didn't read the report, but I followed yeah. some of the testimony. This is where U.S. politics is very different from U.K. politics. <laughs> and, yeah. I, you know, I struggle to follow follow all or, or naturally understand what was going on here. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me what's going on here?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, there is 448 pages of descriptions of... Nothing that has been defined as collusion, but more what has been defined as obstruction of justice, possibly, right? And so obstruction of justice is something that the Department of Justice can investigate, but they can't indict a sitting president. So when Mueller explains the conclusions of the report and he is asked, has the president committed a crime— he has to say, you know, I, if the president had not committed a crime, I could tell you. All right. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. So you, you haven't told us that he didn't commit a crime. So therefore, it's a roundabout way of saying that, that he did. Okay, thank you. Um, and then when he's asked about rumors of a sealed indictment, which basically means if the president was no longer sitting, that then he could be served an in indictment. He also cannot... Confirm that there is not a sealed indictment. So, wouldn't you think that if obstruction of justice hadn't taken place and there wasn't a sealed indictment, he would just say,
0: yes, There was yeah. no obstruction of yes. justice
2: and there's no sealed indictment? Yes. Exactly. Okay. It's not really that hard to read between the lines there.
0: Okay. How serious a crime is obstruction of justice and.
2: It's impeachable.
0: Okay. Of course. Okay. So, this is where you have to help me understand because. Why can't they then impeach him for this?
2: Well, it's in process. So the U.S. Congress has the House Judiciary Committee, which is currently working on an investigation, which is kind of like a a pre-impeachment trial. I'm one of the 81 witnesses to it. That's public information. So very proud to serve my country. (laughs) And... (laughs) You know, it's it's going slowly because Nancy Pelosi, who is the leader of the party and the person who would normally be in charge of gathering everybody together to behind a certain vote, you know, acting as uh, as a whip, she does not believe that impeachment right now is the right political step. That it might give him more power because obviously, has a very strong base. She has her reasons, but Uh I don't think as an american as a politician as a citizen as someone that cares about other human beings that you could say that a president that incites violence racial hatred uh sexism is somebody that should go one more day without an impeachment trial like not one more day
0: okay i'm gonna go and read that after this
2: yeah i think that's
0: Something I'd like to know more about. Some interesting stuff. Yeah, okay, so we, we, we went off uh, track there a little bit. Yeah. Um, so you've made a decision. You're going to blow. What's the next step? Is that where you kind of have to disappear?
2: Well, when I realized the gravity of what I was about to do, which is say that possibly both the Brexit campaign and the Trump campaign were conducted illegally, I was not sure how that was going to go. I mean, I've been an avid follower of Julian Assange and Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning, and that didn't work out very well for them becoming whistleblowers or encouraging other whistleblowers. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, the I, I'm talking about the UK and, and the United States, my two homes. So those are the two places that I would normally feel safe and welcome and I am about to tell everybody in power that I completely disagree and perhaps I'm completely undermining their legitimacy. So what's going to happen next? I I didn't know. So I decided I would go somewhere where nobody could get me and wait to see what happened.
0: Thailand's a beautiful place.
2: It is a beautiful place. It's a wonderful country. I I suggest it to anyone who hasn't been. I've been
0: there three times, I think. Yeah, Yeah, love that. Okay, so so you're out there. Basically, then everything kicks off. All goes crazy.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So actually, all of my whistleblowing articles came out when I was on my way to the airport. Okay. And when I landed, the whole world had seen it. I I honestly, (laughs) I thought it was going to be way smaller than what it ended up being. I, I originally told Paul... Hey, in order to make sure that everyone has their facts straight, like I think I, you know, I've got enough opinions and evidence that I I could write a good op-ed. Uh-huh. <laughs> I suggested to Paul that I would write an op-ed. And he said he was thinking of something a little bit different when he introduced me to Paul Lewis. So, after spending days and days of going through some of my evidence and my interviews with them, we created, I think, four or five articles and one video that I thought, hey, you know, everyone will talk about it for a couple of days and then it blows over. Uh-uh. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> I never thought that everyone in the world would know what Cambridge Analytica is. And I never thought that everyone in the world would care about data rights all of a sudden and that this wouldn't be five articles, this would end up being five million articles. Was Alexander aware before
0: the articles broke, or was he no. just hit with, okay.
2: He was aware that th- something was coming out in The Guardian because they wrote to him for comment, not, okay. not my articles, yeah. but I believe for Chris Wiley's articles and some of the other things that Carol Cadwaller wrote. Okay. Um, they had written to him with questions. So he knew that obviously something was coming out, but I, I don't think they reached out to Alexander for comment on mine. But you were obviously, for,
0: you know, you've made it clear you were obviously fond of him. You know, he was a colleague. He took you under his wing. He said he, you know, he was fun. You, for a while? Yeah. But you've sac- you have to sacrifice those relationships in those situations now.
2: Well, you know, I, I like to think that we were friends for a while, but looking back on it, it, it does seem like he did anything that he could to manipulate me into doing what he wanted me to do
0: well he i think he believes what he's doing is right and the thing i found very very concerning with him Mm -hmm. was the presentation where he's talked about where we're experts in behavior change and i don't think he even realizes what he's saying at that point i'm like so basically you're saying you're experts in manipulating people to do what you want and that to me goes beyond the here's a message, here's a campaign. Like when I worked in advertising, this is yeah. manipulating people and I don't think he realized how sinister that is.
2: Yeah, and to us it didn't sound sinister. Uh, for me, I had come from you know, volunteering for United Nations agencies and NGOs and CBOs, and those organizations call behavior change campaigns when you are getting people to use a modern hospital as opposed to a witch doctor, when you're getting people to use condoms as opposed to spreading HIV, when you're getting people to drink clean water instead of dirty water. And so for me, behavior change campaigns have always meant something positive. And that's why I was never creeped out by it. A lot of people, when they hear it for the first time, like, how, how could you just listen to this and not freak out? But I had come to it from a totally different context. Yeah. And the so film I doesn't never... do this. The film doesn't give you this bit. Right.
0: Yeah. I think the film is interesting. I think too much was spent on production. Not enough <laughs> was spent on the telling the story in the right way. I still think it's good. I don't know. I mean, what's your view on it? Do 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 you have an opinion on it?
2: I mean, I think it was a massive opportunity for my story to have a global impact that I I never would have probably had that platform otherwise. Okay. And I think they were able to tell the story in an engaging way, in a way where people actually take notice and where they care and when the movie ends, they think, you know, what can I do now? Okay. I think it was, it's really useful for That's for the Michael people Moore to school, yeah, to spur people to action. and I'm it's not a documentary I'm a movie. fan of Michael, Michael Moore, you know, well, we, he
0: says that you don't make a documentary, you make a film exactly. you know, and you've got to drive people to for action
2: well, that that was the thing. I mean, the the directors who are two absolutely brilliant human beings had been trying to make a story about the data crisis since the 2014 Sony hack Yes, and had been struggling to find characters that they could actually tell an understandable story through because they're t- trying to tell a story about something you can't see. Yeah. So they knew from the beginning that they were going to have to work with a lot of animators in order to start to visualize mm-hmm. what that actually means. You produce data every day, and it's kind of you know vacuumed off of you by all of these kleptocratic companies. And because you can't see it, most people don't yeah. take any notice. You click a terms and conditions box, and you never look back.
0: Yeah, but even now, even... Post Cambridge Analytica, mm-hmm. where everybody knows the sinister use of data. I still don't think people care. I still think there's apathy. Still people think apathy. I like, still think people are like, ah, oh, fuck it.
2: Definite apathy, but we have more momentum now than we've ever had, Yeah, I would say, since. But this and, is
0: where I think it needs to be driven by regulation. Exactly. Rather than the expectation of the individual. This is why I think privacy will be driven by it being a commercial tool rather than the individual seeking out their own privacy.
2: And I totally agree with you, um, which is why I really wish I could say I expect so many companies to make the ethical choice, but they're going to have to be forced to by the law. So that's why I work on law and regulation as much as possible. Just like what we did here in Wyoming, it's common sense legislation that still allows companies to build. It allows entrepreneurs to do what they need to do, but it protects people. Individuals still have their rights and they have consent and transparency Uh and the ability to actually own their own value. Like here in Wyoming, you're... Your digital assets are your intangible personal property. So your data and your blockchain tokens are no different than your house.
0: Okay, so a couple of questions I want to focus on before we come to a close. I think mm-hmm. I could probably talk to you about this for hours. <laughs> I <laughs> think we'll have to do a follow up at some point. For sure, um, I'd love to. It's fascinating. Reflecting on a little, like how much soul searching have you had to do? And like, are there any areas where you've had to be kind of personally critical and you've looked at yourself and you're like, I was wrong here?
2: Yeah. Oh definitely. I mean I, I can't wait for you to read the book. Yeah. Um or listen to the audiobook. It I recorded it in my own voice, so it's okay. actually um it's very emotional. I tend
0: to do the books. I tell you why the audiobooks. It takes mm-hmm. I can do an audiobook in a weekend. Yeah. But to read it takes me probably like a month.
2: No, no, I mean same with me, just yeah. because I always keep putting it down, picking up something else. Uh Harper
0: Collins, right? Yeah. I read on I read the preface. That's when I got to your LinkedIn, that's when I did yeah. you. Yeah, that, that, that was the journey I went in the last few days. Yeah, so I've read the preface. Not a,
2: it's not a light title. Targeted, the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower's inside story of how big data, Trump and Facebook broke democracy.
0: And the keyboard as a <laughs> hand grenade.
2: Yeah, I like that. It's yeah. good creative. Uh, yeah, they came up with that. Uh, it's mind-blowing. I was like, that is better than, than what I could have hoped for, yeah. <laughs> for you to propose to me. So, yes, we're going with this, and I want to plaster it everywhere. <laughs>
0: okay, but the self-reflection,
2: the self-reflection, self-criticism. You there's, know. Been, there's so much of that. Oh, God. When you look back and you realize what you turned a blind eye to because there were shiny objects all around you, it's sad yeah and I mean it it's really crazy. I never earned more than a hundred thousand dollars a year at that company. I wasn't even paid well, okay I had a couple of grand a month in my pocket but the
0: the <laughs> it looked the the film paints a picture of you're in high power meetings going to important places, dealing with important people parties, champagne like
2: mm-hmm.
0: I can see how you get swept up into all that right
2: yeah, and I did and I told myself that I was living a great life and I was doing something important and that I was building a unicorn. I was gonna own equity in a billion dollar company and I was going to be able to quit and go use those tools for all the things that I wanted to see in the world. Now that I know how to use it, I can go and run all of my human rights campaigns and progressive political campaigns around the world for the rest of my life effectively. And that is obviously what I still intend to do, but only with data that people yeah. have consensually and transparently given to a cause that they believe in too. Right?
0: You, you told yourself a story. You, yeah. Yeah. You convinced yourself. Yeah. Coming out of that must be quite emotional.
2: Very, <laughs> um, but there, there's nothing more. I don't know. There, there's nothing better for self-reflection than just brutal honesty. I, I call it radical transparency. Just being totally honest about exactly what happened and making yourself live through that. Yeah. Every time I have to say it, you repunish yourself for the decisions you didn't make back then.
0: And Do you worry about the impact that's had potential on other people's lives?
2: Of course. Every day which is why I spend every waking moment cleaning up my mess. It's not just my mess. It's a mess of an entire industry that has been going on for 10 to 15 years this way. So I'm doing my own part and no small part to change that. You are right? Yeah.
0: You're going to trigger me. I cry very easily. If you go, I'll go. (laughs) I promise you. Yeah. Are you okay? Yeah. All right. Thank you. Okay. So... The last thing I want to ask you about mm-hmm. is actually there's going to be two questions but we'll go with the, f- the first one is about mm-hmm. Facebook and big data. How yeah. how big a problem is, is this still?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What should people genuinely be scared about? Yeah. And what should what needs to change?
2: So the gravity of the problem is that if you had a Facebook account before April 2015 your data is out there and you are never getting your privacy back. Okay, It's absolutely impossible for likely the millions of databases around the world that have your personal data from the friends API for that to ever be deleted. So is Facebook data the only problem? No. I mean, most of individuals' personal data that has been collected by companies for, you know, since those companies existed is all over the world and it's available for purchase for not just to the highest bidder, um, but to anybody that wants to license these things. And so it's a pervasive problem throughout the, the whole industry. But what what Facebook refuses to recognize is that it's not just that they continue to show a complete lack of regard for privacy or for the consent or their well-being of their users. It's that they're not making important changes that they could be making and that they could be investing in. Instead, they are making very small cosmetic fixes, like, for instance, labeling if a photo or video has been manipulated. Okay, great, but you're not, you're not suppressing or, or stopping fake news. You are, You are just saying, hey, by the way, this video has been edited, and you're still going to allow everyone that watches that video to, to see that, whatever it happens to be. Sometimes I find that to be okay, sometimes not. They've also made small fixes like, okay, this is a political ad, so that weird manipulated content is no longer hidden, you where know, you think it could just be a post from your friend or what have you, uh-huh. which was a big problem in the last election. But they could be investing in systemic change. They could be changing the way their algorithms work to push up positive content instead of negative content. But right now their algorithms favor hate. Mm -hmm. They make Uh, negative content viral. And that hasn't been fixed. Another thing that should scare everybody that hears this is an amazing woman called Yael Eisenstadt. She had worked her entire life at the CIA in counterterrorism and cybersecurity, and she was recruited by Facebook to become the head of elections integrity. Okay. She served in this role for six months before she quit because Mark and Cheryl said no to every single thing that she told them they needed to fix in order to protect people ahead of the elections. She gave back all of her salary and her stock and said, I don't want anything from you people. Okay, that's interesting. And she has now joined the Center for Humane Technology. Wow. Um, Founded by Tristan Harris, who is both of them are brilliant human beings and all the work they're doing is incredible. But to have a cybersecurity and counterterrorism expert come into Facebook to try to fix things and be told no to everything and for her to literally quit and give everything back... We should all be terrified at what Facebook refuses to invest in and refuses to protect people when they could. Why not allocate a small part of that $500 billion to actually doing something good for a change? (sighs) It's disgusting.
0: Yeah, there must be something. There must be a risk there. But we both still use Facebook.
2: I do, yeah, because I don't want Facebook to go away. I just, want, be I just want them to stop abusing people. That's all. I like Facebook. I like mm. being connected to people. I like being able to communicate with people from all over the world with ease. And I like having a network that I've built over the, what, 13 years I've been on Facebook.
0: Yeah.
2: So that's not the problem. Like Facebook as a platform is not the problem. The fact that the people who make decisions in the company refuse to make ethical decisions even when they're forced to is the problem.
0: I've right. got a share price to keep up yeah all right well, look, this has been fantastic like I said, we could have gone for probably like <laughs> three four hours on like a rogan length show I think it's just a, a a fair way to end this is just for you to tell people what's coming up for you and then mm-hmm. I think at some point in the next few months we need to do a follow up and go uh, I've covered your story now mm-hmm. now I really think we should go into the the problems with data and the future of data I think I think you and I could do another show based on that hopefully one day
2: definitely uh, I mean that's. That's what I know I'm spending the rest of my life dedicated to. Okay, we've done the film. I've put out this book that actually starts from the moment I meet the CEO of Cambridge Analytica to when I decided to become a whistleblower. And once that story is totally out into the world and... I can answer as many questions as are helpful for people. My entire life is dedicated to the solutions. So there are two things that I spend my time doing right now. One is campaigning for legislative and regulatory change. Because of the work that I got involved with here in Wyoming, I co-founded DATA, the Digital Asset Trade Association. We're a 501c6, so a nonprofit lobbying firm. And so we help legislators and regulators understand what common sense legislation is so that both... Individuals and companies can continue to lead a happy, productive <laughs> and free life, right? You know, I, I believe that entrepreneurs and regular citizens like both should have rights to do what they need to do. And so helping make balanced legislation that means that companies are not gonna lose their business model. They just need to make some changes in order to protect people. And that's what that's what I work on there. And then I recently co-founded with my sister the Own Your Data Foundation which seeks to improve the problem of a lack of digital literacy around the world. Uh-huh. So we are putting together curriculum that are meant not only for for children, so you know K through 12 first, but Implementing digital literacy also into universities, into companies through HR training. But I I don't see a future where a kid should go and learn a typing class and learn how to send an email to their parents without being told, hey, every word that you type, that data is being collected by this email client and the email client of your parents and a lot of companies in between. So are you comfortable with that? Mm -hmm. And do you want to tell your friend who you have a crush on? Or do you want to tell your friend, meet me at recess and I want to tell you something in person? Okay. <laughs> you start to yeah. think in a little bit of a different way. You know, there's an amazing man called Jim Steyer who started Common Sense, amazing organization that, you know, protects children online. And he's done a lot of incredible work and we want to, you know, support that and follow in his footsteps and proliferate that work around the world also in addition to just the curriculum and implementing that into the education system and into companies, we will be running global digital literacy campaigns. Wow. So, to get people to care and to realize and to learn how to protect themselves, because you can have all the best laws in the world, but until people care, you know, we're not going to see systemic change. Yeah. So. Wow.
0: Okay. Well, this has been great. I really enjoyed this. I definitely came in with some some opinions about you or some thoughts, some areas I wanted to explore, I wasn't sure. This has changed my mind on a few things. There's <laughs> some things you. I didn't expect, some part of the stories I didn't know. Yeah. And yeah, I'm just really glad you came on and you wanted to do this and I hope we can hang out again in the future and do another show sometime.
2: Definitely. No, thank you so much. Absolutely brilliant. Good luck. Yeah, you too. See you soon. Do
0: you mind if I ask your sister a couple of questions? Do you mind being asked a couple of questions?
2: Uh, Go for sure? it. Switch Switch seats.
0: Okay, so the main question I really want to ask you, what's it like watching it from the outside as her sister? What's that, this last, what, two years, really? Two years been like?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because a lot now, I mean, obviously it's been very publicized and people are very interested in the story, but her personal life, you know, her personal story has become sort of a grounding in that through the film and now the book and everything so a lot of people are very interested in her personal journey so it it was really interesting sort of knowing her fully you know and seeing her go through that and it's hard to see people just look at her time at Cambridge and like I appreciate you exploring the whole journey because it's not just one day you wake up and you say I'm going to work for this company as a Republican consultant and run you know, run Brexit and the Trump campaign like that doesn't just happen one day when you wake up like it, it's a it's a journey you know there are a lot of decisions made so I think a lot of people miss her whole story and like who she is and just sort of jump to a conclusion about certain things but it really is yeah there's fault there's wrong but there's also a lot of explanation and there's a lot of like choices that a lot of people would have made, could have made, but some people choose to ignore the fact that, you know, human fallibility is is real, and people make choices. People make hard choices. Sometimes they don't pay enough attention. You know, it's, it's a very personable story. So it w- it was at certain points when she worked for Cambridge, you could see her kind of drinking the Kool-Aid a bit, you know, like, and that was, I felt kind of her pulling away from herself when she sort of at the end decided to come out as a whistleblower and put herself in the position to be criticized, not knowing what was going to happen, you know, sort of risk everything to put it out there because she was just like, I have to do something, you know, I have to, I have to speak out about this. That for me was kind of her coming back to right. herself, you know, like that was more of so who she's always been with strong opinions. Yeah. Pushing them forward, you know, not just speaking out about them, but acting on them.
0: So you you felt for a period of time like your sister was just kind of changing, and you were like, "What's going on here?" A little bit, yeah. Like any difficult conversations?
1: Plenty. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, plenty. Yeah. You know, realizing obviously when she started working for them, I come from more of a psychology background. So, ocean modeling. She used to tell me some very interesting social impact campaigns they were working on that I, I generally saw the value in you know like i it was the ocean modeling like all the psychology behind it is very interesting they're obviously not the only people who use that you know they're not the only data analytics company but i understood you know how she was getting into that work and then it's you know fast forward like two years when you're really in the thick of it and it's you know like she admits you know you kind of get swept up yeah you she's you know wildly intelligent person who's drawn to intriguing new concepts and technology and I think in some ways that kind of blinds you like you're so interested in the possibilities and the technology that sometimes you lose sight of.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think Paul in the documentary said a very very pointy thing where he said everyone deserves their redemption and I think you uh, feel, feel like you're getting it? You got it? What do you think?
1: An ongoing journey i've yeah. seen her also you know not just through cambridge but in the post and she's, she's done a lot of soul searching it's been a very emotional journey for her you know anybody who goes through something like that and then comes out the other side sort of reconciling with yourself is a long process and it's not a week-long process nope. or a designated time frame you know in some ways she's very much still going through it you know it's driving a lot of her decisions now it's completely you know if that would have never happened i doubt she'd be campaigning for data ownership and data rights you know i doubt that would sort of be her life goal but everything happens as it does you know and you take on causes you believe in because of certain things that you've been through most of it is emotional
0: well i wish you both good luck with what you do thank you Uh, if you ever need anything just reach out to me if i can help in any way Well, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Cool. Thank you for listening to Defiance. Just to close out, I do want to add some notes about this interview. I'd followed Brittany quite closely after I'd watched the Netflix documentary The Great Hack, which covered the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica scandal. And if I'm honest, my opinion of Brittany, without her side of the story, was someone who had jumped ship as the scandal was exposed and was potentially exploiting this as an opportunity. But... Having met her, having thought it through, having spent time with her, I think it's impossible to truly know what happened and the choices Brittany faced. And my opinion is maybe that this was someone who was early in their career who had made a series of small decisions which ended up with her in the eye of the storm. I believe that this weighs heavily on her and she does deserve the chance of redemption. If you haven't seen it, I do recommend watching The Great Hack and, you know, you should come to your own conclusions and I'm happy to discuss this with anyone. You can reach out to me. My email address is peter at Anyway, I do hope I get the chance to talk to Brittany again in the future and I am thankful for her for making this show with me. Also, before we close out, I do want to say a massive thanks to my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com.